Okay, let's talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit as a person is God. We looked at the characteristics of Him that make Him a person, and those characteristics are characteristics like us. Mind, will, emotion, capable of being grieved. All of the things we've been looking at are characteristics that would apply to us as well. So He is a person like us in that sense. One might say we are persons like Him in that sense but there are there is a sense in which he is a person that exceeds what we are uh, and that person that the fact that he does he is God and he has all of the characteristics uh, of God uh, the first thing that he is is we know from 1 Corinthians 2 uh, 10 and 11 which we read earlier this morning uh, that he's omniscient he knows everything. A lot of things, a lot of times we get in trouble on omniscience. Everybody know what omniscience means? All knowing. You think Jesus understands quantum mechanics? Sure he does. Did he then? Of course he did. Uh, God, is, in other words, you have to ask this question. When did God not know? When did God not know that he was calling you into his kingdom? When, when did God, the reason God never changes his mind is because changes of mind occur because we didn't have all the information. Now God can relent, you know, in Exodus when Moses interceded on his behalf, on behalf of Israel, God said, I'm going to wipe them out, start over with you. And Moses said, if you do that, the Egyptians will say, ha, he couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And he appealed to God's glory, yes. not God's pride. Right. Yeah. Appealed to his glory. Yeah. And God said, uh, all right, I won't. It says, Scripture says he changed his mind. What it means is he relented. Didn't change his mind. When he said to Moses, why, did he, why would he say to Moses, step back here. I'm going to wipe this mess out and start over with you. Why not just do it? Because he wanted Moses to know because he knew that if he told Moses, Moses would intercede. And he wanted intercession on behalf of Israel. Uh, what happens is we get to a certain point where sin tips the scale, where his holiness demands judgment. The only thing that, that can hold that back is intercession. Ezekiel. I think I can't remember now if it's 2230 or 3022. Said I looked for an intercessor because I did not want to destroy the land. The intercessor is the one that God starts looking for. He did that with Sodom and Gomorrah. He did not want to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He told Abraham what he was going to do. Why? Because he knew Abraham would intercede. Why? Because he wanted intercession. Why? Because he didn't want to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know, God doesn't say, ha, gotcha. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He doesn't, he didn't want to destroy it, but unfortunately Abraham uh, stopped asking before God stopped giving. He didn't go far enough. Uh, he figured Luke, I mean, uh, he figured Lot had done his job, and at least surely there's ten righteous there. 
<laughs> well, Lot hadn't done his job, and so God saved Lot. But would God have gone all the way if Abraham had? I suspect so, because Exodus and Moses indicate that he would have. He looks for intercession, and uh, that's where we're desperate. But the Holy Spirit is omniscient. Isaiah 46.10 says, I call the beginning from the end. I mean, I call, yeah, I call the end from the beginning. In other words, he knows before he starts the beginning what the end's going to be. The Holy Spirit is omniscient. Uh, he is omnipresent. Psalm 139, 7. Where can I go from your spirit? If I dwell in the depths of the sea, you are there. You know, there is no place. If I'm in darkness, there you are. No matter where I am, uh, you are there. Aren't you glad? Yes. There is no place you can get away from him. If you're an unbeliever, that's bad news. But if you know him and are walking with him, that is great to know. Even in the depths of hell is what the psalmist is saying. Even in Sheol, you're there. I mean, there's no way uh, to get around. And it says that thy spirit is there. In other words, the Holy Spirit is there. He is truth. 1 John 5, 7. The Holy Spirit is is truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, 1 John 5, 7. Uh, For there is three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Um, Jesus says, the spirit is truth. He is truth. That is an aspect of it. He is holy, Luke 11, 13. Uh, He gives life, Romans 8, 2. He says, through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit has set me free from the law of sin and death. Through the Spirit. What was that verse? Romans 8.2. His works prove that he he is God. Genesis 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, as I said earlier, fluttering, in a sense, is what the Hebrew means. The Spirit was there. Um, he is the author of inspiration. We read that verse earlier, Second Peter, one twenty-one. Um, he is the one who beget Christ. It was the Spirit of God. Gabriel told Mary, "The Spirit of the Most High will come upon you, and you will conceive." Um, he regenerates and saves people. John three, uh, five through six. Let me just get that real quick. Make sure it does say that. Jesus answered, speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we regenerated. Uh, through the Spirit. Romans 8.26, which we got to a little earlier. Let's go to that. He intercedes for us with God. Why? He knows, the, he knows We know from 1 Corinthians 2, he knows the mind of God. He knows the thoughts of God. He reveals those to us. Romans 8 takes it a little further. Romans 8.26 says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is 
because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit will prompt the prayer through you. Yeah. I used to think that that was sort of intermittent, but I'm thinking that the Spirit is praying continuously, and it's the flow that we enter into. It's going. The Spirit's praying all the time, and we enter into that. We're the ones that are intermittent. Maybe we're entering into that flow. That's yeah. Look, already look, going. Look at verse 34 in Romans 8. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. So you got two members of the Trinity are continually interceding for you. Look at Romans 8.28. Don't read Romans 8.26 and 7 without 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, who to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now notice that, those whom he foreknew. You get back into omniscience. When did he foreknow you? Or let me put it this way, when didn't he foreknow you? I'm probably, my wife is an English teacher, that she's probably going nuts to hear me say that. <laughs> And let's go a little further. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does glorified refer to? Bringing them into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom. You will see the glory of God. If he foreknew you and predestined you, he called you, he foreknew you in eternity past. He called you in this time-space continuum. He justified you. His call is always efficacious. When he calls, you come. He justified, he will glorify. He doesn't say some were called and some were justified and some were glorified. If he did, you will. Because he's omniscient. When did he not know? Oh, I didn't realize he wouldn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shucks. Oh, shucks, I picked the wrong one. Uh-uh, not possible. Now, notice what it says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. Now let me give you an example of what I would suggest part of the Spirit's intercession involves. Do not take this as the to total interpretation of this passage. This is a limited interpretation of this passage. But in connection with all things work together for those who love God, who are called according to His purposes, I would suggest to you that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and begins to regenerate you, uh, this is my example, but you know I can't tell you this in Scripture, but I would suggest He starts making a checklist. And He's in your life, and He says, I've seen that, uh -huh. can handle that, and we can get rid of that, we need to get rid of that, and you know, we can handle that, and that's nothing new, and various things. And then he begins to intercede for you to the Father. And the Father begins to arrange your circumstances <laughs> to change your life yes. to be conformed to the image of his Son. And I would suggest to you that's one way that the Spirit intercedes. There's more to it than that. But that would be a continuous intercession. In that, but he intercedes for us as we 
come down to pr actually pray. You know, when we're involved, <coughs> you know, he will intercede. He will prompt a lot of your prayer if you let him. You know, oh, Lord, I need a Mercedes and I need it now. You know, no. <laughs> you know, and one drives up and the guy says, take a look. It's not yours, but you wanted it. So you <laughs> I guess the Holy Spirit could prompt that for some reason that would extend the kingdom, but he is not going to prompt prayer that furthers our selfishness you know, or, or things of that nature. But he will, and the scripture here is teaching that he will prompt prayer um, when he, and he will actually uh, intercede through us. And I'll give you a great example. I had, uh, uh, in a church I was in back in the 70s, I, I taught uh, a class of young marrieds uh, in that church. And believe it or not, at the time, I was a young married myself. Um, and this was long after the Civil War, so I don't want to hear <laughs> any of that. You know, this was about the time of the Spanish-American War. But anyway, uh, this was back in the 70s. We were young couples, and um, one of the, and of course, young couples, you know, were starting to have babies, so we were young families as well. We were becoming young families, that happens. And one of the couples, um, she became pregnant with their first child. And uh, she had uh, toxemia, and they didn't catch it. Um, the husband came home one day uh, when the baby was due at any time and she was extremely sick and he rushed her to the hospital and uh, the doctor told him um, if you'd been an hour late you'd have lost both of them if you'd come in one hour later you would have lost both of them she did give birth to the child, uh, but she developed eclampsia, which is often fatal. And they couldn't handle it at Arlington Memorial Hospital, so they sent her over to Dallas. And I've forgotten where in Dallas, I think it was Baylor in Dallas. And she was utterly swollen. Her potassium levels went off the charts. and. Um, there really wasn't anything they could do for her. And uh, we, Joan and I, got a call on a Friday night from one of the other couples in her class and saying, they don't think she'll survive the night. So we prayed. Well, she did survive the night. In fact, eventually she came out of the hospital. She's alive today. Their son, who was born, is a surgeon. Some weeks later, I got with the husband and I said, what happened? And he said, oh, well, <laughs> let me tell you about it. He said, I was sitting out in the waiting room and I just thanked God for, they'd been married five years. And he said, I just thank God for letting us have five years. And I surrendered her up to him. And the Spirit of God began to speak to me. 
And he said, she needs prayer. And she needs strong intercessory prayer. And Mike said, we don't have time to call for the elders. And the Lord said, I agree, you'll have to do. And he said, but I'm not righteous. And he said, immediately he got a picture in his mind of a white robe dipped in blood. And he said, put that on. And then let's hear no further talk of unrighteousness. It was the blood of Jesus. So he said, all right, what do I do? Now, of course, in his mind, he had put this on. It wasn't literal. And he said, what do I do? And he said, go into the ICU. And he said, I can't. They won't let me go in there. He said, I'll take care of that. You go into ICU. And so I went into ICU. And I said, what happened? And he said, she was utterly swollen. And I put my hand on her head. And I prayed. And I said, what did you pray? He said, I don't know. The Spirit prayed. I didn't recognize the language. Come on, come on. And he said, we prayed. He said, this was about 10 o'clock at night. He said, we prayed, and then the prayer began to stop. And I said, Lord, why is it stopping? And the Lord said, because you're doubting. And he said, well, what do I do? And he said, deal with doubts. He said, how do I do that? The Lord said, Confess your doubts. He said, you mean just say I'm doubting? He said, that's good. <laughs> he said, I'm doubting. And the flow picked up again. They'd go for about an hour and the flow would begin to wane. And he'd say, Lord, I'm doubting. And the flow would pick up again. It's at 6.30 when the doctors made the round, she was visibly changed. The yes. swelling was gone. Everything. That's an example of the spirit interceding with words too deep, with groans too deep for words. See, he is able to and will do those sort of things. We just not question of our ability, folks. It's a question of our availability. And he was available. He had surrendered her up, and he was prepared to do whatever God wanted to do, and God wanted to deliver. They're alive today. Well, I had my 65th birthday party. John gave me a surprise party. And so people from Oh, you know, there were some guys that were in the Confederate Army with me were there. <laughs> that couple was there uh, uh, two years ago at my surprise birthday party. But God will do these tremendous things because of who he is and because of who we are. We're, we're He's compassionate. You've got to understand with the Spirit that Psalms, Psalm 34 says, his ears are open to the cry of the righteous. You're righteous. You know, don't don't do what Mike did and say, I'm not righteous. Yes, you are. You know, you're righteous because he's made you righteous. Because of him. Huh? Because of him. It, because it's, of Jesus. It's because of him. If we could only understand now again, I'm gonna give those of you that aren't in the class, I'll give you guys in the class you know, be, give me be patient, let me tell another story. And my one of my favorite stories is from the Civil War. Not when I was there. I'm not in the story. Sure. <laughs> but during the Civil War, Lincoln, uh, everybody, office seekers, everybody were trying to get in to see Abraham Lincoln. <coughs> and his offices were on the second floor. And there was a line lined up outside the, the double doors of his office that went from the doors down the hall, down the stairs, out the front door. And on either side of the door 
were two Union soldiers standing there with bayonets fixed. Nobody got in to see Lincoln unless he said so. But he had two boys of his who were his sons, Willie and Tad. And Willie and Tad would go walk past the line, go up the stairs, come down the hall, come to the double doors. The two Union soldiers would smile at them, open the doors. Willie and Tad would go in. The soldiers would close the door. <coughs> and Lincoln would get up from his desk, get down on his knees on the rug, and start playing with them. That's the relationship we have with the king. Mm -hmm. See? And we have that relationship through the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Nobody else can get through to him, but we can. Mm -hmm. It says in Psalm 34 that his face is fixed against the wicked. You know? The only time the wicked come before God's presence in a positive light is when you intercede for their salvation. Yes. Otherwise, his face is against them. But for us, his ears are open to our cry. Look at Psalm 34, 15 sometime. Just, just look at that. We're not going to look at it now. Okay. All right, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he sanctifies believers. Uh, we are set apart from the rest of the world by the Holy Spirit, uh, which then results in the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and we have a totally different perspective. Yes. We see things completely differently. That's why we're aliens and strangers in the rest of the world. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, says... To the aliens and strangers in Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, A uh, I forgot the word, Galatia. The aliens and strangers. Why are we aliens and strangers? Because the Holy Spirit has transformed our thinking. And we now see, we have different values. We now, this world is passing away. Our mind is fixed on the world that's coming. It doesn't do us any good to amass a pile of gold because that's all passing away. You know, we're concerned, your, your goal, your desire in the Holy Spirit ought to be whatever He can do through you to expand and strengthen the kingdom because that's what's coming to stay. The rest of this stuff is passing away. When Paul talks about the armor of God, he says, take up the helmet of salvation, the helmet that the Roman soldier wore protected the brain. The helmet of salvation is what gives you the different perspective that the rest of the world, you have an eternal perspective and you only have that because of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit coming into your life. And that makes you very different from everybody else and they don't like you for it because you don't have the same values. You don't, you don't think that stuff is cooling. The unbeliever thinks that you really do, but you're playing a game and you're just doing everything you can to avoid wanting to have the fun that they have. They don't understand that that's been changed. Yes. It's not that you're trying to keep from doing it. It's that you don't want to because the Holy Spirit has come into your life and begun to sanctify you and change you with different values. And that's an only God does that. Okay? Jerry, the reference on that again? Uh, First Thessalonians. Uh, somebody else get that? 2.13. Let's get it. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men for what it really is the word of God which also performs the works which you believe in you who believe. Okay. 
Um, of course, his names reflect that he's God. And he's referred to as the Spirit of God. Uh, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Jesus said in Matthew 28 19. Um, the Holy Spirit is Almighty God, and he must be revered as such. Let me tell you, it is dangerous to get cutesy with the Holy Spirit. You show the Holy Spirit reverence, you will grieve the Holy Spirit if you don't. Um, I, I hear people all the time that being real cutesy about God and the Holy Spirit, that is dangerous business. I, a guy that I know, Christian, calls God Mr. G, the man upstairs, uh, talks about God in a real cutesy way, that's dangerous business. I, I like what, uh, how many of you read the Narnia tales? Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. You know, Aslan, the Lion, is, is really Jesus. And the Beaver, who is, show, who is their guide, and he's explaining to them about Aslan, says he's a great lion. And the kids say, is he safe? And the Beaver says, of course not, but he's good. Yeah. You got to keep that in mind, folks. Yeah. Always you want to reverence and respect the Holy Spirit. The Jews, uh, and I got to hand them this, they usually addressed God both in two capacities. One as Almighty God in the sense of who He is and also in a, in a relationship type capacity. Look at Psalm 80 verse 1. We'll give you a picture of that. The reason they did that is in order to make sure they constantly maintain the proper balance. He is your father? Yes. It's like Abraham Lincoln and Willie and Tad? Yes. But he is almighty God and don't forget it. And so is the Holy Spirit. Psalm 80 is a picture of the way the Jews would address God and they are right on on this. Look at this. Verse 1. Oh give ear shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. What is that a picture of? Shepherd and sheep relational. Relationship. Next, what's next? You who are enthroned above the cherubim shine forth. What is that? Almighty God. My shepherd, but Almighty God. So I remember Joan and I and the girls, we were in, uh, we went to uh, a monastery in Canada one time on our vacation. And we watched the monks uh, doing a Vesper service. And uh, they were swinging the incense and bowing before the cross and all that. And of course, my, my wife grew up Catholic. And my Protestant. And so my Protestant roots kind of sprung up. And I said to myself, Lord, this is really hokey. You know what the Lord said? I see it as reverence. Yes. Oops. <laughs> And I started paying more attention to what they were doing and began to respect what they were doing instead of criticizing. Because God sees it in very different light than I was seeing it. He was seeing it as reverence. It's not Protestant Catholic in his view. It's reverence in his view. And would I do that? No. Did God approve of what they were doing? Yes. Because they, it was he was looking on their hearts. I was looking on their outward form. Uh, so always keep that in mind and you want to always be reverent otherwise you will quench the Holy Spirit you will grieve him uh, and you got to be very careful criticism uh, that's one of my gifts uh, 
You've got to be very careful about that. Why well, I pray that you get deliverance 2012. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need your help. <laughs> Thank you, brother. That's what those words. <laughs> no, that's true. Criticism is one of my problems. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm way too critical. Uh, and that sort of thing grieves the Holy Spirit. I don't know what's in their lives. You know, I don't have any idea where they've come from. You know, yeah, I think they're jerks. God doesn't. God knows where they came from. He saw all the agonies and the heartaches of their growing up. He saw everything that has affected them and made them the way they are now. I don't know any of that. You know, so, you know, God's been dealing with me about that. Um, uh, it'll take longer than 2012, but I appreciate your prayer. <laughs> okay. The God I serve says different. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> the God I serve says different. Oh, Lord, God I serve says different. Oh, I'll take that too. All right. Okay. The words we speak. Joy, folks, joy comes from the Holy Spirit. Um, that is a characteristic of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is joy. Yes. Um, what is joy? Joy is not happiness. Yes. Happiness can be part of it, but happiness is ultimately dependent on circumstance. Mm -hmm. Okay. For example, uh, you get a you get a, an envelope with a, a window in it, and the return address is Internal Revenue Service. Now, right at the moment, you have anxiety. You open it up and it's a refund, happiness. Yes. You open it up and it's notice of audit, unhappiness. Okay. Your happiness is based on your circumstance. Joy is not dependent on circumstance because joy is from the Holy Spirit. It is a, it is a characteristic of the Spirit. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, their circumstances are not good. Uh, they're in tribulation. But notwithstanding that, the Holy Spirit has given them joy because it comes from Him. One of the reasons, and, and again, here's another one. The Sunday school people will have to be patient with me. But uh, in ancient Roman times, when the Romans were um, persecuting Christians, oftentimes gladiators who were used to put the Christians to death in the arena found their way down into the catacombs afterwards asking how to become Christians because they saw the joy of the believers in the arena. And it impacted them. It also impacted numerous Romans in the stands because they saw this joy and they couldn't explain it. Here they are facing death and they're full of joy. See, that is a characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Philippians, uh, he will deal with, in other words, you can't have joy and anxiety together. Uh, one gets rid of the other. Philippians 4, look at this. Uh, verse 4. Notice how he starts. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now that's one of the, Philippians is considered the book of joy. Uh, it starts as a thank you letter anyway. 
uh, he was in prison and they sent him a gift. And so he was writing the thank you note. But Paul, being the good lawyer that he was, <laughs> never wrote anything that was short. In fact, Philippians is one of the shorter epistles. But notice what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now here is one of the secrets of joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now when he says, let your uh, prayer um, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. What you are doing is you are in communion with the Holy Spirit who is interceding for us. And when you give this up to God in prayer, you are wanting His will to be done. So you are praying with thanksgiving, asking that His will be done. Your anxiety comes when you want your will done. Because you're not sure that that's his will. Anxiety always has uncertainty in it, doesn't it? Yes. What's going to happen? You know. But when you are praying with the Holy Spirit moving through you, you are asking that his will be done. Now, I would highly recommend, and this is part of the Lord's Prayer, when he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what that's saying is, God, let what is you have determined in heaven be done on earth. One of the things you want to consider doing is asking God to tell you how to pray. And then when he tells you, begin to pray to receive what he's told you. Okay. But you're praying, when you pray, you are asking that his will be done, and then you're giving thanks for that. Why? Because his will is ultimately good. Romans 8, 28, for we know that in everything... God works together for good. Psalm 84, 11, For the Lord is a sun and a shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So Psalm 84, I think about verse 11. Can you trust his will to be good? We're not, one of the things that the Holy Spirit is teaching us is yes. But it takes us a while to learn that. Because we're afraid we're not going to like what he does. Am I the only one like that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. In the midst of tragedy. Huh? In the midst of tragedy. You be, because you've got, in addition to that, you've got perplexity. Mm-hmm. Why is this happening? I mean, where is your goodness? Let me suggest to you, and that's a good point to make. Let me suggest to you that there is nothing wrong with asking God that question. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why David is called a man after God's own heart is because David didn't mind dumping the truck on God. You know, go read some of his prayers. You know, I've been up to my armpits and Philistines all day. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Where are you? You know, there are several psalms where the psalmist says, How long, O Lord? You know, what's he talking about? Where are you? If you'll read those psalms, those particular psalms, you'll find they all end in praise. Now, dumping the truck on God, he does it. 
he lets his frustrations out. You might as well. I mean, he yeah. knows it. Right. <laughs> you might as well. But do it respectfully. Exactly. I mean, David is never disrespectful right. with God. You do it respectfully. But when you're in the middle of things you don't understand, there ain't anything wrong with saying, I don't get this. I don't see you in this. Where are you in this? Uh, you know, I know you're good, but I'm having doubts at the moment. There's nothing wrong with saying that. That's called perplexity. Uh, that's why Paul says, you know, perplexed, but not despairing. Let's look over in a second. I, this is not supposed to be a lesson on prayer, but the Holy Spirit is actively involved in it. Second Thessalonians. Second Corinthians, I'm sorry. Second Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way. I started in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Any of you been there? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, one of the great things about the Psalms is that the psalmists have been in every level of human emotion you can imagine. You want a psalm on grief? Go read Psalm 88. My friends have deserted me. Darkness is my only friend. Now that psalmist is in deep grief. You know, the psalms go from the depths to the heights. It's a wonderful book. I never have devotions without psalms Amen. being open. Perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also will be made manifest in our body. Verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. When the Corinthians read that, they knew what he was talking about. We don't know what he's talking about. He's talking about King Cyrus. Cyrus the Great, who founded the Persian Empire about 500 years before this time, did not believe in banks. I can't imagine why. You know, banks are too big to fail, all that sort of thing. He didn't believe in banks. So what he did, he let's put it this way, he didn't trust in banks. So what he did is he took his gold and his silver his jewels and he mixed them in with earthen pots so that they were part of the pot itself. Thieves came in, it would never dawn on them that the treasure was inside, was not in the pot but the pot mixed with the clay. Whenever Cyrus needed some mad money, he'd just walk over to one of the pots, kick it, break it open, and it was easy to spot the silver and gold against the clay. See, that's what Paul's referring to, and the Corinthians understood that. That was well known in those days. Okay, he's using that with us. We're earthen vessels who contain the treasure of God. How does God break our pot open? Perplexity. The things that he lists in verses 8 and 9. When you're perplexed, grief will do it. Perplexed. The earthen vessel is broken open by these things, and the gold becomes obvious. <coughs> and other people see that. Yes. How can you do that? How can you go through that? How can you do 
What's the secret of that? They want to know. That's what draws people to us. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, I got to move. Yeah. Same problem is in your Bible study, right? Huh? Same problem that is in the Bible study, right? Yep. Anybody in the Sunday school class will tell you it takes us five years to get through one verse. <laughs> All right. Let's look at the work of the Holy Spirit real quick before we break for lunch, and then we'll come back and look at the last two parts. Is it hot in here to y'all? Yeah. I'm, I'm hot. Maybe it's just... Maybe. Hey, preaching, man. Preaching. The Holy Spirit, uh, the works of the Holy Spirit first in creation. Uh, and I'm just going to kind of run through this quickly. Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God made me and gave me life. Uh, Job 33, 4. Psalm 104, 30. When you read your spirit, when you send your spirit, they are created. Now that's referring to the animals, the creatures in Psalm 104. But the Holy Spirit is the one that gives life to creation. Uh, he breathes the, the breath of life into him. The Holy Spirit is the one that does that. Uh, inspiration comes from the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, the, he's the author of Revelation. Again, 2 Peter 1.21. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, uh, but prophets spoke as they were motivated by God's Spirit. So he is the source of Revelation. Second uh, Samuel 2. Second uh, Samuel 23.2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me. His word is upon my tongue. Uh, Ephesians 2, 2 uh, Ezekiel 2, 2, I heard the Spirit speaking to me. Uh, Micah 3, 8, filled with the power of this and with the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, he is also uh, the means of revelation. He uses, the Spirit uses these areas of revelation as a means of revelation. One, the spoken word, Exodus 19, 9. God speaking directly to Moses. Okay, dreams, Genesis 20, uh, 31, Joel 2, 28, all through the scriptures. Jacob, Joseph, even unbelievers, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Isaiah, Peter in Acts 10. Um, anybody ever had, does he do that today? Anybody ever had a dream from the Lord? I've had three that I know of. My daughter, Terry, has them all the time. And they're darned accurate. I guess darned's not a good word to put in front of accurate. They're very accurate. I mean, he's, I, I told her one time, I said, why is it that in my, I walked with the Lord 44 years, why is it that I feel like the Spirit of God has only given me a dream from you about three times from Him, but you get them all the time? She had a very interesting comment. She said, Dad, we're going to face times that you didn't have to face. And he is speaking to us in a different way. Her cousins get them too, and her sisters. Uh, he, is, he is speaking in a different way because you're going to have to hear what he's saying. I'll tell you one dream I got. Some of you have heard this but, uh, from my Navy days. Um, I was legal officer of an air station in Virginia Beach. Tough, tough duty. Constant <laughs> combat. <laughs> uh, we, I worked. Any of you? What is it? CSNI? Is that the? Is that the? Is that the television show? NCIS. NCIS. Well, in those days it was called O and I. Yeah. 
right. post-Civil War. Uh, 1970-71, it was O&I, Office of Naval Investigation, civilian, uh, just like the FBI. My office and his office were next to each other. So we worked hand in glove uh, together. I was, I was the lawyer, he was the, he was, O&I was the, you know, the, the agent. Uh, we did a lot of stuff together, we don't have time to go into that, but there was one guy who was the source of crime in one area that, of the base, and we had tried and tried to get the goods on this guy. And um, just incredible criminal. And um, we got him. The O and I guy got him. He got the evidence we needed. And so I drew up a charge sheet that when you open it, it <laughs> we got him for we got him for robbery, we got him for transfer of drugs, we got him for oh, just no end of the stuff. We were gonna send him up the river for so long he would still be there today. Well I um, the commanding officer signed the charges. I had short patrol, I mean the security bring him in the next morning was he used to come in next morning, I was gonna serve him with charges. The night before he came in, I had a dream. And in the dream, um, I saw the passage, 2 Corinthians 3.12. Just 2 Corinthians 3.12, just the, the address. I didn't say what the verse was. And then the dream would change. And I was in the church that I go to church, or I was going to church there in Virginia Beach. And the pastor in the dream stood up and said, this morning's sermon was on 2 Corinthians 3.12. And I said, oh, this is wonderful. I'll find out what it is. And before he could say anything, the dream changed. And we were all leaving the church. And everybody was saying, wasn't that a wonderful sermon on 2 Corinthians 3.12? And I was running from person to person. Saying, what? What? What was it? And then the dream would change. And again, 2 Corinthians 3.12. Well, I finally woke up. What do you think I did? Well, you read 2 Corinthians 3.12. 2 Corinthians 3.12. The version I had in those days was called the Berkeley version. Um, uh, one might call it the uninspired version. But it, I opened to 2 Corinthians 3.12. And, and what it said was, seeing what a great hope we have, we speak with great plainness of speech. Now, the name of this guy that we were going after, his name was Barber. And so later that morning, 9.30, uh, they brought Barber in, sat him down in front of my desk. And I said, you know why you're here, don't you? And he said, yeah, let's just get it over with. So I pulled the desk drawer out where I had the charge sheet, and the Holy Spirit spoke. And he said, do you remember 2 Corinthians 3.12? And I said, <laughs> How can I forget it? And he said, good. I want you to announce the gospel to this man in as plain a terms as you can. I said, Barbara? And he said, Barbara. So I closed the door. And I looked at Barbara for a minute. And I said, Barbara, did it ever occur to you that Christ took on flesh, bore your sins on the cross, 
and took your penalty in order that you might not go to hell. And you, you would have thought I had just walked over, punched him in the face, and he's, he looked at me, <laughs> and he said, yes, sir, I've thought a lot about that lately. And he came to Christ five minutes later. And uh, I said, I still got to court-martial you. And he said, I understand. But it was an instant conversion and good conversion. And as he was praying to receive Christ, the O and I guy walked in. He looked at him, looked over at me, and looked back at Barbara. He said, "Well, you killed another one, didn't you?" Uh, he was—he was just being funny. He wasn't talking about my evangelistic efforts. Uh, took three months before the court martial went to trial. But a friend of mine who was a doctor there on the base um, was also a believer. We had worked together a lot, and he called me one day and he said. There is a guy on the base who was an absolute wretch, and his life is totally changed. It's so amazing to me. I gave a testimony in my church yesterday. His name is Barber. Have you ever heard <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, I've heard of Barber. Now, that's the dream. That's the kind of dream I get. I don't get many of them. But the Holy Spirit speaking through that dream was warning. Why? Because he had chosen Barber before the foundation of the world. I'm just the donkey. That's all. He had to hit me between the eyes with that dream, or I would have just court-martialed Barber and sent him on up the river. Uh, but that's what the Holy Spirit does. Okay, we need to move along. Uh, all right, visions, Isaiah six one. Uh, we know from um, uh, Acts two uh, in Joel. In Pentecost, that visions, he will speak to uh, young men in visions, old men in dreams. I'm not surprised. Old men can hardly keep awake, so he needs to speak to them in dreams. I'm finding that out. Okay, the written word, John 14:26. Christ himself is uh, revelation. Hebrews 1, 2. He's the author of inspiration. Uh, the Old Testament, Second Samuel 23, 2 and 3. 2 Timothy 3.16, all, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, etc. Um, New Testament inspiration is authenticated. Um, New Testament inspiration was pre-authenticated by Jesus. John 14.26, he, uh, he will speak to you. We read that before. Uh, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. Uh, it's asserted by the writers of the New Testament that Scripture is inspired by the Spirit. Uh, real interesting one is Second Timothy, Second Peter, three, where Paul attests that Peter's uh, Peter attests that Paul's writing is Scripture. So it's hard to follow for some of us, but it's definitely Scripture. Uh, but it is asserted, for example, First uh, Corinthians fourteen thirty-seven. Anybody gets there? 27? Thank you. If anyone speaks in a tongue, 37. Um, did I read that wrong? 27 and 37. 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment, recognizing that the Spirit is the one that gives 
uh, Revelation. Uh, Galatians uh, 1, 7, and 8. Uh, which is really not another. Let's see, I am. He said, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. He's saying that the gospel is uh, scripture uh, and what he has spoken to them is scripture. And he does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and as a result of the Holy Spirit's role, we have revelation and inspiration of the scriptures. And that's why doctrine is considered inerrant and infallible. Because the word of God can't be in error because it originates from the spirit. Uh, now, can it be, are there wrong interpretations or wrong uh, translations? There are. Uh, I will, there is a textualist uh, uh, I've read several uh, some works by people who are textualists, those people who go through the scriptures to determine the authenticity of it. There are 432,000 errors in the New Testament. Ninety percent of those are typos. The other 10 percent uh, deal are not typos. And 1% of the 10% deal with issues of doctrine. And of the 1%, none of them change the doctrine. So, yes, there are errors. Yes, there are mistakes. People are always saying to me, uh, you know, well, what about the fact that it says that when Jesus came out of Jericho, there was only one blind man in one gospel, and the other says there were two, that sort of thing. And, I've told the Sunday school class before, that is not a contradiction uh, of Scripture. That enforces credibility. Uh, because the fact that there are differences in the gospel accounts of the same incident. Mm -hmm. As a lawyer, I can tell you when we're cross-examining somebody on the witness stand or we're examining witnesses, we get two or three witnesses that tell the identical story. They're lying. Exactly. It's the differences that create the credibility. Right. Mm. You know, we, when we start to hear the exact same story from two or three witnesses, we know there's a rat loose somewhere. You know, it's the little differences is, that create the credibility. Because nobody sees, and, and the Spirit's willing to move around that sort of thing. He, he is creating credibility. There's all kinds of things he's done. Uh, you know, man would not have done this. Uh, you know, for example, the, the first people to uh, witness the resurrection were women. Women. Oh, my gosh. Women in those days were not considered reliable witnesses. Yeah. If you were making this up, you certainly wouldn't have women discovery. Right. And I've always thought women were there at the resurrection because it says the napkin was folded up on the side. <laughs> you know, and I'll tell you what, folks. I'll tell you what. If they had stolen the body, nobody would fold that napkin up and put it off to the side. They had time to do that. They had a Roman guard out there they were trying to avoid. Why did he show women first? Because the promise was originally to Eve. Yes. Yeah. And he is saying, 
Yes. I have done what I said. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Until you ain't got time to worry about whether the Romans think that's good. That's the indication that it's true. The Jews, the idea of a single man being resurrected in the middle, the Jews believed in a general resurrection at the end of the age. The idea of a single man being resurrected in the middle of history was an anathema to Why did thousands of them believe? Because it was true. Right. What I like about that, you talk about the women, where the 120 men were scared and hiding up in the upper room. You would bring that up, yeah. wouldn't you? Yes. That's, that's right. I mean, they, they're out there. Here's the other thing. They're out there at, what, 6.30 in the morning bringing spices? Yeah. They're all in bed. Yeah. That's the thing about the difference between, that's one of the differences between men and women. A hangnail will put me in bed. <laughs> My wife mops the floor at midnight with walking pneumonia. That's the difference between men and women. And I thank God for it, too. You know, They're tougher than we are. No question about it. But the indication of the validity of the Spirit's work in the Scriptures is the sort of thing that men, if they were making this up, would never have done. They would never have put women as the witnesses. It just doesn't. The Gentiles, the idea of resurrection of the body was an anathema to them. They believed that the best thing that you got in death was you got free of the body. So why did thousands of Gentiles become Christians? Because it was true. That's why. That's why so many Jews became Christians. That was an anathema to them. Because it was true. That's the only reason thousands would become Christians, both Gentile and Jew. It was true. The idea of it itself complete anathema of both Jew and Gentile. The only explanation for why thousands would and give their lives in the arena and everything else was true. That's why. Okay, we got to go to lunch, folks. Come back, we'll talk about the uh, Spirit in Jesus. I think down to the cafeteria. We'll talk about the Spirit in Jesus ministry and then we'll get into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've been very patient. Why don't we aim for 1230?